Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. The fact that kids still feel stigmatized going to a counselor, but that's got to change. All kids need access and appointments to make sure their mental health is intact. When you get out in nature, when you exercise, you're going to raise the endorphins in your brain, which is going to make you feel good. You're going to do better. People are going to be more attracted to you and it's going to change your life. Anytime your child is that reclusive, the parent needs to maintain that connection and just reassure them that they're not alone in this. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Today's guest is a certified grief recovery specialist, health educator and speaker. She works with teens and young adults who are struggling to understand themselves and the world around them. As a survivor of grief and trauma following her husband's tragic suicide, she is uniquely positioned to bring hope to those who are struggling. In the wake of epic grief, her life found a new trajectory. She discovered a deep desire to inspire and help those in need, not just physically, but emotionally, psychologically, and even spiritually. Her mission now is to reach out to those wrestling with grief and offer the opportunity to find a safe space to confront their pain and fears, to address them, change them, and ultimately move through them to a new perspective and new life. In 2014, my guest began facilitating grief recovery workshops for groups and individual therapy. She has quickly become an in-demand public speaker about suicide prevention and grief for schools and civic groups throughout Southern California. Her writing has appeared in a number of newspapers and media outlets, including the Huffington Post. Her most recent book, Be You, Only Better, real-life self-care for young adults was written to complement her earlier book, Beneath the Surface, a teen's guide to reaching out when you or a friend are in crisis, which was published a couple of years prior. Her most recent book, which we will discuss more today, introduces young people to simple yet powerful day-to-day practices that promote mind and body wellness. With simple, straightforward tactics such as mindfulness and journaling, healthy sleep and sound nutrition, she empowers young and old alike to take charge of their own wellness. Her mission is to help abolish the stigma of mental illness, depression, suicide and addiction. She aims to pull back the curtain and help start conversations about topics that no one wants to have. Because, as she says, being an advocate for all those suffering a loss of any kind is important, not just death. We grieve all kinds of losses, relationships, health, career, trust, identity, and addiction. This could not be more timely given where we find ourselves in the global pandemic. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome Christy Hugstad to the Elevate podcast today. 
Thank you for being here, Christy. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure, really. And I'm grateful for people like you that have taken the time from your incredible journey, but to invest in others. And I think that's really what this year particularly has brought to light for so many people. How are you keeping in the midst of all of this global pandemic? First of all, that's the first question I should ask you. Well, I'm in Southern California and things are actually kind of slowly turning around here. Restaurants are starting to open up. Uh, there is indoor dining with restrictions, but it, we're starting to turn the corner. Oh, isn't that nice? It's great to see some light at the end of the tunnel. I would love to start, if you wouldn't mind, and I know it's probably quite a painful one to talk about, but if you'd be comfortable, I'd love to be able to speak about that pivotal moment in your life, which is filled with grief initially, obviously, and probably still today, but it's what catapulted the transformation for yourself possibly and for wanting to help others towards self-care. Would you like to start talking to us about that first? Sure. Eight years ago, my husband died by suicide. He ran in front of a Metrolink train in Dana Point, California, where we lived. And to add to the already, you know, disbelief and tragedy, my husband's father was a passenger on that train. So, you know, I can't say I was completely blindsided. Because for at least a year prior to his death, I had been trying to fix him. You know, I'd been trying to find him, that right psychologist, that right church counselor, psychiatrist, that magic pill, um, whatever I could to bring my husband back to the man I married him. So I had been in, in the depths of his depression with him for about a year prior to that. And all the warning signs and risk factors were there. He talked about feeling hopeless, not wanting to be here. You know, the glass was always half empty and everything he talked about. He could barely get out of bed. You know, he wasn't taking care of himself. So all of those risk factors and, more, and warning signs, they were there, but I was so focused on getting him back to the way he was, I, I can't say I missed the, the signs, but I didn't know what to do with him. And so after his death, I thought, you know what? I've got a couple options here. I can be a victim of the tragedy, or I can take my pain and then use it to help other people so other people don't ever have to go through what I was experiencing. I didn't wish that kind of emotional pain on anyone. And so I decided, you know what? I want people to know what I didn't know. And you know, a lot of us always take action after the fact. And and this is a life or death situation. So I wanted to educate people and teach them the warning signs and risk factors and not to take them lightly. You know, this is very serious. And so my first book, I just wrote my story and then gave people tools for grief. And then I decided, you know, if I'm really going to change our culture, I need to start teaching our youth, our teachers, our administrators, our principals, and our parents. We all need to be on the same page. And so that's why I really shifted my focus to writing to the teens. Because that's where change needs to start. 
firstly, I wanted to thank you for sharing that terrible event that you go through. I appreciate you sharing something that was extremely sentimental and personal in your own life. Really, thank you for that. I know it takes a lot of courage to be able to talk about something so painful. So I appreciate you bringing that event out, but again, using it as a force for change and a force for good. I think what you're saying aligns very much with my vision around Elevate and getting to kids before the worries and the depression hits to a place where they they feel they've got no options. It's not always about mental health really for me, but I think what you're doing really gets children ready for learning and being curious and being explorers and being the best they can be if their mental health is looked after. So it's a massive precursor to all the other bits of their life, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, it, when you think back, of, you know, how I grew up anyway, there, there was no talk of mental health. There were no tools. You basically just had to suck up whatever you were going through and hope that things got better. That was it. And, and especially our world has changed so much with technology and over this past year with all these students online and they're, they've lost that social connection, which is so important at that age. And they don't know how to handle it. And this is the first for most of us too as adults. So the timing couldn't be better to actually say, okay, here are some ways to navigate through this. Here are some self-care tools. Absolutely. And can I ask you, going back to your own personal experience, were you consumed by any kind of guilt or shame or worry that you weren't able to do more to help your husband? Oh, absolutely. Uh, The very first emotion that I felt was guilt. I took on 100% responsibility. I thought it was my fault. I didn't get him the help he needed. I didn't find that magic pill. I didn't find that right professional. And had I found the right people, he would have gotten help and he would still be here. You know, that's very typical. And it took a long time for me to really understand, you know, that his depression was a mental illness, right? And he did need professional help, but I was not the magic answer. You know, he also bought into the stigma of mental illness. He did not want to go to doctors. He did not want to own that he had depression. So I dragged him places. So that's another part of why I'm so passionate is because my husband was 54 when he died, you know, white middle-aged man, the highest risk group there is. He'd already bought into the stigma. He never had conversations with me about it. And that's got to change. Yeah, of course. I I imagine that's, like you said, it's a very typical feeling and something maybe lots of parents, when they see their child, maybe going into some thing because I think the difference between teenagers becoming reclusive and becoming depressed can sometimes be confusing for parents because it is a time where they want to separate from their parents they do want to build their own identity away from parents and so they spend a lot more time in their bedrooms and they spend a lot more time on their devices what tips would you give to parents who do worry about their children it's a real fine line there between giving the space to start being their own person and developing that, that uh, independence. But any time your child is that reclusive, the parent needs to maintain that connection. You know, you have the right to go into their room and sit down 
and say, hey, you know, you haven't set foot out of your room in four hours. And I just want to make sure you're okay and want you to know I'm here for you and I love you. And just reassure them that they're not alone in this. Because if you say, hey, get out of your room, get out here and have dinner with the family, they're going to be very defensive. And that's the worst thing you can do because then you're going to create a bigger gap between the two of you. So I think you need to meet them where they are and just be a heart with ears. Just be empathetic and say, you know, I'm, is there anything I can do? I've noticed that you've been quiet or I noticed that you've been showering or whatever behavior it is that you've been noticing. Okay. Don't just brush it under the carpet and say, this is a typical teen thing. If it feels wrong, find out why. Exactly. And a lot of those things are risk factors for depression. And that's why I want the parents and the teachers and the teens and all adults to be on the same page. We all need to know what those risk factors are. If your child's sleeping all the time, not showering, and is very withdrawn. And I like to think of it as if your child is becoming somebody you no longer know. That's the best way to describe it. Interesting, because that's how you described your husband as well, right? That you were trying to bring him back to who the person he was when you first met and got married. Um, and I wonder, I'm, I'm not going to use the word denial, maybe because, well, it is probably in some cases denial for parents and teachers, even if they see signs. And I want, sometimes when I think about what it is that makes us feel like it's, oh, we don't want to go there. Yes, there's stigma, but also it requires a lot of work. It's draining, isn't it, to talk about emotions and work out where someone's mental illness stemming from or how to help them because it's not like a cough or or a a fever where you can take like you said the magic pill or or some kelpol or paracetamol and and feel better about it in a couple of hours it's a journey it's a process and it can get messy it requires a lot of resilience maybe and may and i wonder what you think about how we can cultivate a greater awareness on this or how we can shed some light on helping people that are afraid of the work that goes into dealing with mental illness? Well, I think the first step is to normalize the conversations. It doesn't, we're all fearful of it because I think for a lot of parents that I work with, they don't want that burden of their child having a mental illness. They want it to go away because they don't have a skill set to deal with it. If we normalize the conversation, we shouldn't be afraid of it. And we need to start that young. And it can start with noticing changes in behavior. That should be a normal part of everyday conversation. Just like you would say to your child, you know, I noticed you're limping today. Did you fall? Did you get, you know, hurt in school or what happened? Of course you would ask that question. So if you're noticing a change in their mental health or in their personality, address it and do it as a, just a natural part of conversation. If they do notice it and they do ask questions and the teen insists that nothing's wrong, is it persistence? What does a parent who feels like they've tried and like many teens, they think their parents don't know anything about them. They don't understand them and they wouldn't understand them. So they don't talk to them. What should a parent do in that instance, do you think? Well, if they are addressing these issues and the child may unfortunately not be ready to discuss it at the time the parent is, that is to be expected. 
So pick a time where you have their undivided attention. So let's say your child's gone to bed. And you go in and you sit down on the bed. They, now they're your captive audience, right? That's the time to say, hey, you know, I, I noticed the last couple of days you haven't really seemed yourself. And, you know, you're, you don't have the same sense of humor that you've always had. And I'm just wondering, you know, if everything's okay or if there's anything I can do or you need from me. And he may at that time open up. So, or if you're in the car and they're in the back seat or they're in the front seat and you're driving somewhere and you have them captive for a half hour, be aware of when you choose to bring up your observations because it may be uncomfortable for your child. And you may have to go around two or three times because the most important thing you can do is say, I just want you to know I'm here for you. And reassure them that whatever is going on, you have their back. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. The other stigma I've witnessed personally and, and from my daughter who's 14 and her friends is that they talk about school counseling. And a lot of parents assume this is something that if they can't handle and they don't have the know-how, like we just said, to cope with, that the children should go and talk to the school counselor. Yet a lot of teens seem to feel that the embarrassing element of having to go to a school counselor where other children can see that you're going, whether it's to do with bullying, whether it's to do with school grades, not keeping up, whatever it could be, the reason for going to the counselor is irrelevant almost. But the problem is actually being seen by your friends going into the school counseling office. What can we do to help make that conversation less taboo? Well, the schools obviously need to change their whole way of providing counseling. It is not shameful. There should be no stigma. Every child should see a counselor. Every child. Everybody should have their mental health evaluated. It should be protocol in every school. And I know here, for example, I have a niece that's a counselor, and there's two in the whole school, right? And it's a big junior high. And she basically said, we are dealing with academics. We are trying to get these kids into the right colleges. And there really is, they're not staffed properly to give these students mental health help. And that's got to change. The fact that kids still feel stigmatized going to a counselor, I get it. When I grew up, it was a punishment. You know, I go to a counselor because my dress was too short. You know, I mean, it, I get but that's got to change. All kids need access and appointments to make sure their mental health is intact. That's a really good point, actually, isn't it? I think you're right. I think if we make it for everybody, because it can't do any harm for anyone, can it? No. And, you know, just because some teens are symptomatic and they're, they're noticed by teachers and administrators or the parents have called and they're concerned, does not mean that these other kids who are silent don't need help as well. So it should be a service that's mandatory for everybody. They all have to have physicals, right? Yes, yes, I, I completely agree with that. We look after our physical health in so many ways. So the term I'm gonna bring out to you now is self-care, which is out there in, in you know, loud, it's amplified in many industries, beauty industries, in the health industries, it's it's physical gym industries, it's out there. Self-care looks 
like an important word in everybody's book. But I think what it means to certain people can change and varies depending on where you are in your life and what it is. And some people think of it as a privilege and a luxury. Other people think of it as a necessity. Now, I think in your, in our work, so what we're trying to do is make others understand that self-care isn't a luxury, it is a necessity. But I would love for you to talk to me about what self-care looked like for you before your husband's tragic event and what it looks like now or if they're different at all. Oh, they're night and day. Yeah, okay, I thought so. Wow. I didn't initially have any dedicated self-care program. Oh, I mean, we owned a gym together, so I taught spinning and Pilates, and you know, we took care of ourselves physically and uh, ran a business, and that was about where it stopped. And then after his death, when I'm dealing with, you know, was it my fault? All this guilt and grief, and trying to just process why I could save him. I went the exact opposite where I started to learn to meditate, to, to take deep breaths throughout the day, to, to be more present in life. And I went, I, I, I changed, I think into a completely different person. So there was growth and good that came out of that. I think I'm a little more aware of the world around me and a lot more empathetic with other people. Because before that, I was just on in the fast lane. I was just making money, running a business, um, and really not stopping to appreciate life. Yeah, that hamster wheel that we all get onto and then don't know how to get off until something or somebody tells you that this isn't working anymore. Yeah, that's a tough one. So even before coronavirus hit, you and I probably both agree that teens and young adults particularly were facing all sorts of mental health challenges like academic stress that you talked about, like getting into the right colleges, getting into the, getting the right grades, passing those exams, but also things like substance abuse, pressures around the media industry about how you're supposed to look. So things around eating disorders, anxiety, depression, around friendship, bullying, you name it. There seems to be a multitude of areas where, where teens seem to struggle, which is um, you know sad that we haven't really moved on. But I do think that coronavirus hitting the, and, and them losing that connection with their friends and, and being physically out of the house could have only amplified all of these concerns. But tell us a little bit more about your amazing new book and how that helps teens navigate these types of crucial concerns. Well, my main goal was to break it down into five different types of self-care and, and to let our youth know, you may need more work in one area than others or you may need to focus on three of these areas. I just want to make sure that they understand that self-care is unique to them. Sure, so let, should we talk about those five areas? They are yes. physical, emotional, social, mental, and financial. Yes. Correct, okay. So tell me what it is that, do you map it out for them? Do you have to help them work it out for themselves and which areas they need most help with? Well, what I do is I first start out with a story about a real young adult that is struggling in that area, right? So let's say somebody is struggling with their physical self-care. There's a story of a real teen that I know who didn't ever think that she needed to take care of herself and how she managed to come up with a program and make it a priority. So first I wanted to relate to them with a real story of a young person that was struggling. 
Then I talk about what exactly physical self-care means. And I go into body type because everybody, like you said, they're on social media. They're comparing themselves to reality TV stars. And they think that's the image of a perfect physique. That's the epitome of health. And so they strive to be like that. So I talk about your genetics. What is your body type? Endomorph, round, curvy? Are you tall and skinny and lanky? Or are you muscular? You know, So you have genetics that you're starting with and you can improve on that, but don't get sucked into social media and compare yourself with other people. Yeah, they're completely unrealistic standards that they're setting themselves against, aren't they? And they don't, they're too young to understand that these aren't goals they should be chasing because of the science behind their own bodies. Right. And what's happening is a lot of these reality stars, I mean, their bodies are almost cartoonish, you know, and they think that's reality. They probably don't understand Photoshop as much as. <laughs> yeah, there needs to be more and more around that. I think the idea of celebrating. Yeah, no filters and no more of these um, airbrushing apps that you can get where you can get rid of. I mean, I know there's an amazing campaign out there at the moment by Dove for the girl that does the reverse selfie. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's it's all the touch ups that she's done to her face going backwards in time back to her original beautiful face. But what she did to it in order to put before she felt comfortable enough to post this image of herself. It made her made her look like a completely different person. Well, and you know, we can all do that with filters and whatever, but it's really, really harmful for especially our young girls. So then the next part of the physical self-care, I talk about the science behind it. Okay, so this is what's going to happen to your brain when you get out in nature, when you exercise, when you get fresh air. You're going to raise the endorphins in your brain which is going to make you feel good. You're going to be in a better mood. You're going to do better. People are going to be more attracted to you. And it's going to change your life. That I think is important because, you know, when I was a teen, you couldn't tell me what to do. But if you told me why I should do it, I would listen. Right? So if somebody said, hey, if you get outside and you go for a hike and you get some fresh air, you're going to change your brain chemistry. And if you've ever exercised and when you get back, you think, I'm so glad I did that. I feel so much better. There's a real neurochemical change in your brain. It's real. And that's what you want to get addicted to. And it's life-changing because it boosts your mood, elevates your self-confidence, and it just really helps you navigate life. So I was really, really set out before I wrote the book that I want to let everybody know why they need to do this. And then the next segment is, well, how, how do I get started? You know, like for journaling, I've been told since, you know, for 20 years, write down your story, write down how you're feeling. It really helps. It gives it a life. It, 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 it helps you navigate your emotions, but why, what does it do to my brain? So that's why I really have divided into sections and then here's how to get started. I'm not just telling you to get outside and exercise or to journal. Here's how to start journaling. Here's how to start exercising. So they have a roadmap because that's, I think, what's missing in a lot of self-care approaches 
you really need to be very specific. You know, if, if I tell you to journal, you're going to say, how do I do that? Yeah. There's so many reasons to opt out. It's, it's, it's easier not to. And you know, the first thing you might think is, do I have to go out and buy a journal? Right. So I give you lots of different options and reasons and what's going to happen to your brain when you do these things. So mm-hmm. I kind of bring the science and the reality and real stories into each chapter so that after you read it, you actually really want to engage in those self-care tools. Yeah, it's really brilliantly written. It's very clear. It's very precise. The two areas of each chapter, how to get started, and then the other one, time to check in sections, which were namely there to inspire action and facilitate your self-reflection is brilliant. I think that's a really helpful way to guide somebody who feels a bit lost. And, you know, if they're not right anyway, then what they don't need is ways for them to steer off the road that we want them on so having these tools is brilliant but I wondered what you found in your experience about how easy or how hard it is for them to then stay on track with these tools and how to keep best using them well I think the most important thing is to develop the habit of using them and that's why for me to say you know you really need to learn to be present you need to be present in real time and then how do you do that so that's why in the book, I thought, well, I'm not, I can't just tell them that. I have to show as an example, as they're reading the book, I'm, gonna, I'm going to interrupt and say, it's time to check in. How long have you been sitting? You may have been sitting there for four hours, right? And, it, and, and your answer might be shocking. All right. It's time to take a five-minute break. I want you to stand up. Go outside, I don't care what the weather is, open the door, take 10 deep breaths, do a couple stretches, come back in, and sit back down. So I, I, I have an action plan, and I check in with people throughout the book, or I'll check in after three chapters and say, time to check in. When's the last time you ate? How's your blood sugar? Are you able to focus and pay attention? And you might say, you know, I haven't eaten for five hours and I can't focus, and I'm not getting anywhere. So you get up, and you go get a healthy snack, and you come back, and you refresh. Your blood sugar's elevated, and you can move on. So if you practice that throughout the day and make it a habit, that's how you make self-care become a part of your, your life naturally. But I needed to demonstrate that in the book by checking in with the reader throughout the book. So they really understood what it was all about. Mm. And how much are you finding that the pandemic personally, I, I mean, I mean, I'm wondering, obviously it depends on where you live and, and yes, certain countries are getting back to normal, but others are in still major you know, distress. Um, how do you feel that the pandemic's realities with teens with such as virtual learning and the social distancing from family and friends and the pressures from families who maybe have lost employment and now don't have time to check in with their children because the mental health of the parents is also at risk and very fragile. How do you think we can help those children and families? Well, that it right now is a hard time to get everybody on the same page because everybody is really struggling, most of us, you know? So that's why they need the self-care and the mental health programs online. 
really the only way that they're going to be able to reach out and get help. Probably nobody to take them when they go to um, mental health facilities. They're overloaded. They don't. They're not taking appointments. So I really think that has to be done online as well. And the hard thing is getting the young people to actually take responsibility for their own mental health and, and stop buying into the stigma. And so that's why there are podcasts out there and there are all kinds of services online, specific ones on bullying, anxiety, peer pressure, uh, depression eating disorders. I mean, there's all kinds of resources out there. And in the back of my book, I do list uh, places to go, where to go for help. And uh, in the States, there's a teen text crisis hotline. And that's 741-741 because a lot of young people don't want to pick up the phone and talk to anybody, but they will text. You know, so there are resources out there. Um, and, and our teens just need to take a moment, do a little bit of research and reach out. And, um, you know, like you said, not all the parents are there right now. Yeah. And, or they're busy looking after their elderly parents. It's, it seems like there's all sorts of new uh, issues around uh, or they can't look after them and, and because they're isolated from them. And that's creating all sorts of tension at home. It feels like at the moment, there's just a myriad of reasons of why people's mental health would be even those that may not have struggled before I feel like we're all in it together at this point because of how difficult we're all uh, finding this separation and, and the world moving on uh, or getting back to its normal state um, I, I do love the fact that this book is available for children I love the fact that it's got the guides does it go into do you go into schools and offer it or how can how can people other than is it just available online how can people get hold of this book uh, it is available on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, bookstores all over. So my website at thegriefgirl.com. So it should be available online just about everywhere. Brilliant. I, it's called Be You, Only Better, just to remind everybody. It offers a roadmap towards wellness for those of you who are struggling, not just em emotionally, but just people who want to be better. I think that's the nicest thing about this book, that I don't think you need to think, oh, I've got mental health issues I need to get that book it's a brilliant book for anybody who just wants to get better and I think we all want to get better in ourselves in some ways because that's what makes us human really and, and connection with each other I think it offers uh, parents even a way of being more empathetic with their young people it's a, would you agree that there is insight in that for us as adults to be able to look at teens and say ah I've forgotten what it was like to be 15 maybe because I've been so busy being an adult <laughs> The surprising response I'm getting from adults is I learned so much from this book. I learned just as much as my, my kids will. Because really, most of us didn't grow up with any self-care tools. So I think a lot of what's in here is resonating just as much with adults as it is with young people. And that's why I added real life self-care for young adults and everyone else yeah yeah it's true it's really i really attest to that love talking about so much of this because it's such a wonderful topic for us but the word emotional dysregulation i i wonder how many other parents really understand what that means because i think words like oh she's just moody or she's just having a straw gets put out there and I keep using she because I work with girls, but I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about that and how anxiety can play into this. 
Well, when we're in stressful situations like the pandemic, um, that's producing anxiety. Our young people don't have the brain bandwidth to navigate that. Their brains are designed to act impulsively. So until they are, you know, probably about 25 years old, when their brain is fully developed, they will think rationally first before they make a decision to do something impulsive. That's why I'm so concerned about young people, because suicide can be so impulsive. They don't think, oh, my family will be devastated. Is this just a temporary problem? Am I going to feel, am I ever going to work through this? So because of a teen's brain chemistry and they're wired to be so impulsive, I think it's really important that we as adults help them learn how to de-escalate their anxiety so it doesn't turn into depression and suicidal ideation. If that doesn't get you motivated to help your teens to have some self-care, I think not not much will. Christy, I, I love to end my interviews on asking a couple of questions. If you could go back now and tell your teen self something from everything that you've learned today and from the experiences that you've had so far, what would you whisper into that ear? Wow. I would tell myself that it's okay to just be myself. I, it's, I don't need to compare myself to my peers. I don't need to be the smartest, the most popular. It's okay to just be me and just try to be the best version of myself. So I think for me growing up as a teen, I really was affected by peer pressure. And I wanted to be popular. I wanted to be the, you know, good at sports, the cheerleader. I wanted to have what at that time was success to me. And I wish now what I've learned and if I could go back, I would just follow whatever my passion was. And do you think that ever gets easier or better even when you become an adult? I do because you, you learn from your life experiences and they teach you things, you grow and you change. And when you're in that messy state of adolescence and being a young adult, you can't think that far you can't think that far ahead and you're so caught up on what's going on around you. And it's really hard not to be competitive. You know, so I think as you go through life and you take a few hits and knocks, you learn from that and you learn what's important. How important do you think then our parents and teachers role modeling is in that world about competitiveness? I think it's extremely important. I think, think our our youth looks up to us and they model our behavior whether teachers parents they're they're learning more from you than you know oh you know if you're yelling at your kids and and screaming at them and then you're giving them a book and telling them to calm down and meditate you know that's not gonna work so i think i think the self-care starts with the adults because they're the role models and our kids are emulating us yeah, and I think it's true in a work context too, right? There's so many of us women, mothers, parents, I don't know, grandparents, I don't, I don't even know where it starts. But I think we're all, you know, trying to get the next promotion or trying to get the next thing or not be the next person that does the best 
marathon out there. I don't know. I feel like even adults don't seem to stop this thing that you talked about as yourself as a teen, which is to compare yourself to others and be something that you maybe aren't and, and be okay with that. Well, and I've talked to parents at a lot of private schools and they've really pushed their kids to be the best because they want them to go to the best schools and get into the best colleges. And when I speak to them and I tell them, allow your kids to be themselves, take the pressure off, don't push them as hard as, as you are pushing them. I can hear pin drop and most of the parents will say, thank you for that. You know, I've, I've been caught up in this. I'm pushing my kids because I want the best for them. And I'll say, do you want the best for them or do you want the best for you? Right? And it's food for thought. No, it's true. I've, I've worked in schools across um, London and I, and I do think that, that it doesn't matter where you are. It, it seems to be a global concern for parents wanting. And it comes from, I think, a good place. You know, it is, I want the best for them. But I, I think they don't identify what might be the best for them isn't always what's best <laughs> for in their in their view isn't really what's best for their child it's what their what their well, own hopes are and, and, I, and I think it's okay that occasionally they're called out on that is it because you want to be proud of your child are you pushing them to do the things that you didn't achieve or is this what you think that your child is really passionate about and and a lot of times they they um they get a little stuck on that and and teens too they often tell you they may not be able to talk to their parents about it but they do drop it in schools or teachers or coaches whoever's out there this is why i think it takes a village they carry that weight you know they they find that burden quite hard to, to maintain because their parents want them to become a pro that or a doctor or you know I, I don't know what it is but it could be anything um and it becomes something that plays to their psyche and then affects i think their mental health be, well-being Kids want nothing more to, than to please their parents. Even if they're pushing away and acting defiant, they want, all kids want their parents to be proud of them. And I think that's true at any age. I think it's even true as adults. Yes, yes, it's so true. And what do you hope to see change? I think we know probably a little bit about, we've just spoken to that, but what do you hope to see change for, for young people in the future then? I really, my hope is that our young people can grow up without stigma of mental illness so that they will feel confident to reach out and get help if, if and when they need it. Because we all need it at times in our lives, all of us. And the only way that's gonna start happening is if we get into our schools and we start talking about it as a young age, right? It needs to be a part of the school curriculum. And what's happening here is a lot of the health programs are getting cut completely. So there's no physical health and there's certainly no mental health. There's nothing, you know, so we're actually going backwards here and that's what's got to change. Something to think about, I think, and thank goodness for people like you out there spreading this message and writing these books so that we can get the, that awareness out and, and people talking about it. The last question that I like to end my interviews on are who are your role models and why? Um, you know, I guess I'd have to say my mom, and I know that's probably pretty cl cliche, but you know, she, she's 90 and she has such a great attitude and outlook on life and she's living life to the fullest. 
And, you know, she had five kids and we grew up on a farm and didn't have money. I mean, and she is really setting an example of resilience, strength, and uh, that positive mental attitude that really you need to get through life. And so I look up to that. And I just think, you know, if I could be half the woman you are when I'm 90, I would be amazing. Oh, I love hearing these lovely stories. No, that's amazing. What a credit you are to your mom. And I think maybe that speaks to how brilliantly and inspiringly you've been able to take what's happened in your own personal journey to be such a strong woman today and go on because a lot of people but wouldn't maybe be able to do what you're doing if they didn't have all that wonderful resilience yourself. Well, but then maybe that's, I have to look at that as I have a newfound purpose. I was, I am here to do that. And that's my purpose. And that's my mission. And that's not for everybody. No, it's true. It's true. And it's lovely that we've got people like you. And I feel fortunate that we've been able to have this conversation. I think more conversations like these are what will help change, hopefully, the audience's views, our our colleagues, our children all need to be able to look after themselves because if we start by looking after ourselves, then we can look after others. Absolutely. Put your own oxygen mask on first. Yeah. Right? Yes, absolutely. Once again, um, Christy's book, Be You Only Better, brilliant purchase for you, for your whole family. I think it should be in every school and every classroom. I think it needs to be out there as in, in many places as possible. So do get your hands on it and get yourself looked after. Thank you so much for being here, Christy. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from the Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.